tend to have more access to resources to be able to use in their defense versus people that don't have money. So you see a lot of, you know, lower, in, and that's really a class issue, and, and race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Good morning and welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Happy Sunday, guys. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Yes. So this is the show where we talk politics, foreign policy, and social justice from a diverse millennial perspective. We have a great show lined up. We're going to start off with introductions. My name is Selena Hill. And if you're wondering... Why I'm sitting in the engineer seat is because I was wondering. Stanley I was like, "What?" <laughs> Stanley he's apparently is—he's on vacation. He's in Barbados with Rihanna. Right, this is what we always say work- about work-cation. you whenever you're not here, Selena. <laughs> he's on a workcation in I think Albany. Where's he? Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's on work. Sounds really luxurious. Yeah. Yeah, so he's that's living just, it up. That's just where I want to go on vacation. Yeah, it's Albany. Albany, New York. I was actually, that's why I missed the last show, because I was in Albany. So that's, really? you know, yeah, I was visiting friends in Albany. Is, is that the new hotspot? It's not. It's very cold. <laughs> it is extremely cold. Um, but, you know, work brings me and Stanley there often, and we have some good friends that live there. So we're up there quite a bit. Right, right. All right, guys. Luckily, independently of each other. He's never there when I am, thank God. Aw. All right, so yeah, my name is Selena Hill, and on Instagram and Twitter, you can follow me at Miss Selena Hill. You should definitely follow me on Instagram. I just did a an interview, a rapid-fire interview with Jim Jones. You've and, been like, doing amazing interviews yeah. with, um, what's but, his name from... Um, from Scrubs. Yes, Donald Faison. Donald Faison, which oh, was so him. cute yeah, and great. Really yeah, your Instagram but is everything. Let me just tell you, I we got a lot of negative feedback on that interview because a lot of people thought Jim may have been under the influence. Well, he wasn't looking at you <laughs> at all. He was like, it almost looked like he was annoyed to like be yes. asked questions and you were doing a great job and you were super sweet and personable and he was like, whatever. I know, right? He but he like, like begrudgingly answered that. Like I, I would highly suggest people check it out. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Well, shout out to Stanley who's watching us on live. Hi, oh, Stanley. shout out to Stanley. Leave a comment. Seriously. Alyssa. Uh, hi. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> Did <laughs> I, I take you off guard? No. I drank lots of mimosas yesterday at a bridal shower. Oh, that's fun. Um, you know, I like bridal showers better than baby showers because, like, at a bridal shower, when the person opens gifts, I'm like, ooh, I would like that for my right. house, too. You know? I'm like, right. ooh, I like that serving It's platter. not, like, and, um, tiny little clothes and diapers and yeah, stuff. Yeah. I mean, like, when I go to a baby shower, I'm like, can we please not play baby shower bingo because I think I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, right. I love baby shower of bingo. Of course I usually you do. win the prizes, too. She wants I bet you do. She loves baby shower bingo. She doesn't want to know how the baby got there. Right. But she, uh, right. But she loves it once the baby is there. I looked it up on Wikipedia there. one time. Um, oh, no. She had to read the uh, the Birds and the Bees book. What was that? There was a book like that. I, I, sure I, was, I actually did get books like uh, that. But anyways, I'm Melissa. I am not your Birds and Bees coordinator. <laughs> I am your legal correspondent. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs. That's Alyssa with an I. Uh, if you're fancy, and Alyssa Fuchs on Twitter, where I get trolled by my uh, losers and haters, as the president would say, <laughs> um, you know, because they don't like that I don't like Roy Moore, oh. um, because apparently it's very popular to support alleged child molesters oh, these God. days. It is very popular um, for an But you can also leave a comment on Politically Preposterous, the fan page, and then, you know, Jackie can jump in and tell us how unpopular it is, or popular, I guess, to support alleged oh, child molesters. God, not in my book, but, you know, apparently in the South, it's okay to 
to support these men, specifically in Alabama. Anyway, um, I'm Jackie Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at Jackie Cohen. That's J-A-Q-I-C-O-H-E-N. And I had a fun weekend. I went. I was avoiding SantaCon at all costs oh yesterday. So I went to the one place I knew would be safe, which was the Jewish Museum on the Upper East Side. Oh, yeah, and it was great. Good. It was really, it was really nice. It was the safe haven among you know from the Santas, the Aww. drunken Santas. I, so I, it was really I, nice. I saw you post that on social media. And yeah, you're, like, you're not. You're like I'm so far from SantaCon. I right am now. as far as you can be and then i came home and my boyfriend and i watched the room in preparation for um the disaster artists which i'm very excited to see hopefully soon so yeah james franco was actually on um saturday night live last night but anyways when (laughs) i got to when i got to grand central yesterday morning to go i had to go upstate to poughkeepsie for this bridal shower and i get there and it's like 10 15 in the morning and there are people that are going to SantaCon, and they're legit wasted. I mean, there were some people that were having a few drinks, which I get. You know, you're going to SantaCon. Maybe you have a mimosa or two. No, like, there was this group of people, and they were, like, dragging this girl because she was so oh wasted already. She couldn't even stand. And it was, like, 10, 15 in the morning. Well, so, I will say you know, something that I appreciated that I drinking. saw this year um, that I don't know that I've seen as much of in years past, and I think it has to do with the spirit of 2017 going into 2018, like, resisting was all these businesses that had signs in their door that was like, no Santas here. (laughs) Which, you know, as like a Jewish kid from New York that has always had to, you know, suffer through Christmas season without getting to participate, it was kind of funny to me. (laughs) Well, speaking of you being Jewish, we actually have a great show lined up. Incredible segue. uh, We're going to start the show speaking about Donald Trump's declaration that of Jerusalem being the capital of Israel, what this means, what it entails, the implications, and if it is basically a declaration of war against the Palestinians. So we're going to be delving right into Israeli-Palestinian conflict um so definitely you guys want to tune in and chime into that later on in the show we'll be speaking about pearl harbor and how some of that history and lessons learned from the attack on pearl harbor still apply today especially when it comes to like the rise of white nationalism and some other things and then lastly Alyssa is going to give us a breakdown on why scotus may very well decide to bust all public unions. I mean, we've been seeing this happen for the last few decades, and it looks like um, uh, the Supreme Court may get that final say on that. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's actually the third time that the Supreme Court is hearing a kind of case like this. Um, And the reason why they are hearing this case or a very similar case to one they last heard again is because Justice Scalia died and they never could come to a decision the last time they heard a case um, because they were deadlocked 4-4. And I'm going to get more into that later on, but that is very, very concerning because now we know who the justice is who has filled Justice Scalia's seat and it is not somebody who's likely to vote in favor of unions. Absolutely. So thank you, Alyssa. We're looking forward to that full quickie. And of course, guys, if you want to let your voice be heard, feel free to leave us comments on our Facebook live shout out to gregory and stanley who's not here but whatever and you can also (laughs) call us up at 212-650-6903 right now we're gonna skywalk on our haters real quick but we'll be right (laughs) back on let your voice be heard And 
we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And I just wanted you guys to know if I ever mispronounce um, Arab, 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 it's because of that song right there. Okay, it's Arab Money. I'm check your pronunciation. Rhymes, guys. All right, so we're back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. My name is Selena Hill, filling in for Stanley Fritz, who is watching us via Facebook Live and being a loser. Alyssa Fuchs is here as well as Jackie Cohen, and we're in for a special tr- treat. Why? Because <laughs> oh. Jackie's here. And oh, she can actually pronounce Arab correctly all the time. You did and it. She <laughs> yeah, good job. And thank you. And she's actually going to be um, introducing the next segment. Yeah. So Jackie's kicking off the show with the conversation yeah. about Jerusalem. So Trump. in this segment, in this week, in What the Hell Are You Doing, Donald Trump, um, Trump made a decision. He he issued a statement um, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So earlier this week, he issued the statement saying that this is a good deal for both Israelis and Palestinians. You know, he's very interested in deals and making deals and making good deals um, and expressed his desire to move the United States embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, and while he signed a six month waiver, uh, waiving the right to move the embassy forward, um, which every president has done since Jerusalem's I, I think they added that law where you have to sign the waiver in the 90s. But, I mean, this is a step in a direction that no president since 1948 has has taken. Um, so even though the embassy is not moving, Donald Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital has had reverberations felt across the world. Um, many world leaders, including many of our allies in the United States, um, for, to the United States have come out against this decision. And many people within Trump's own administration, including Rex Tillerson, John Mattis, have opposed this decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and to move the embassy there. So, um, you know, I I am hesitant to get into the history of why this situation is so fraught because there's so much there. I think most people are aware that there is a divide between Israelis and Palestinians and that much of that divide comes to a head in Jerusalem. Both Israelis and Palestinians view this land as theirs. And for decades, the U.S. has at least appeared to or tried to appear to be neutral in the situation. Um, But this land is extremely important to both Israelis and Palestinians. It's split between East and West. Um, Both Israelis and Palestinians view this land um, for political reasons and for religious reasons and historical reasons to be theirs, to be important. Um, And so this is a very controversial decision. Um, I want to open it up to you guys. What were were your original initial thoughts when you heard about this decision? Was it something that you thought immediately was really good really bad did you think that there was any impact on the united states or this is just like a foreign policy that has nothing to do with us yeah i mean it was extremely controversial um it caused massive outrage in the international community especially amongst palestinians and arabs um i I was i was very i was shocked but then again, I wasn't because the this is one of the promises that 
Donald Trump campaigned on. He said, you know, he was very forefront about being very pro-Israel. And he said, like, we need to move our embassy um, to Jerusalem and where and we need to support Israel. So it's like you can't really expect it. But the thing is, I'm like, with all of the controversy and conflict like that, this president has buzzing around him and his administration. It's just like you would think one day he would just wake up and say, I'm going to do something that's actually going to heal and bring our country together. I'm not going to try to. <laughs> con- right. I'm not going to actually I'm not going to continue to pander to my to my base, which happens to be conservative, right leaning evangelicals um, and other Republican and conservatives. But I'm going to do something that would better the nation. But no, he didn't. He made a decision that, that I think is very unstrategic yeah. because I don't even understand why he made this declaration without it's getting anything largely in return. symbolic. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but, and, and I think that it's just, I feel like he's still trying to campaign and rally up yeah. his base. <laughs> well, you know, well, he's yeah, done such he a is. great job dividing our country that he needs to go to the most divisive place on earth, which is Israel-Palestine, and put e- an even bigger wedge between the two sides there. But, Alyssa? Right, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, to me, it just didn't seem to make any sense because other than being symbolic, as I pointed out, there's really not any actual changes that is happening. So it's like, to me, it's like, throwing fuel on a fire for no good reason whatsoever in order to appease a small group of your base, be it, um, you know, evangelicals and right-wing Jews um, who have been asking for this thing. I mean, at the end of the day, he still signed the waiver to keep the embassy in Tel Aviv. And more importantly, this jettisons the, the peace talks. Because if you really wanted to have peace in the Middle East, this is a decision that is going to make the PLO and make Hamas step away from the table and be like, well, why should we negotiate with you when you smacked us in the face? That's what big reason why everybody was telling him not to do it. And more another more important piece of that is the U.S. is supposed to be a non-biased negotiator in the peace deal. Well, if you... <laughs> an honest broker. Right, right, an honest broker. If you are making this decision, then you are essentially saying we are putting our thumbs on the scales for the Israeli people. And so that is going to make it that you are no longer a neutral arbiter and should not be involved in the peace process whatsoever. Well, I think some would argue that the U.S. has already put their thumbs on the scales, right? And that this is just a more transparent way of saying, well, we support Israel and not Palestine. And that is the U.S. um, the U.S. policy. Right. But this is clearly a more overt way of doing so um, and has the ability to cause a lot of problems in Israel-Palestine. You know, I think a lot of people are worried that there's going to be violence that results from this. There have already been um, some more violent protests, I believe, in Lebanon. Um, Yeah, this morning. Yeah, this morning. So this is something, you know, a president as... The president, as someone who was so critical of what happened in Benghazi and was so critical of Obama's administration, is putting his own his own ambassadors at at risk of violence. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is he didn't get anything in return. Right. You know, they could have in in some ways. I mean, and you can disagree, but like it's like he could have said, all right, Bibi, uh, Bibi Netanyahu. He's the prime minister of Israel. He could have said, listen, we'll move the embassy. And we'll announce that Jerusalem is going to be recognized by America's capital. In exchange, you have to stop building settlements in the West Bank right now. Right. Um, And because 
if you continue to build the settlements, it's going to make it much, much harder for us to have peace. And so he could have extracted a concession. To me, it seems like this was just sort of a giveaway. And, you know, we didn't really get anything in, in, in return. And that just doesn't seem like a good strategy from a negotiating point of view either. Right, exactly. So scaling it back a little bit and talking about who in the United States supports this decision versus who is against it. Um, I think in large part, it's conservative Jews. It is... Um, you know, Christians, evangelical Christians, many Republicans support this move. Um, on the opposite side of things, uh, you know, reformed Jews such as myself are not our opponents of this deal. Um, but I want to ask, why do you think now? Why do you think? I mean, do you think that he's just like, oh, I'm going to solve the crisis in the Middle East? Like, I'm going to make peace in Palestine and Israel. That is my plan. Like, why do you think now he um, he's going forth with this? decision I mean honestly and I would just have to like repeat what I said earlier I think that he's just really just trying to rally up his base and trying to score cool points with his supporters which happen to be evangelical Christians and um, also right-wing Jews and APAC so I mean unless he has you know owe somebody some money I don't know why (laughs) I mean I have a theory and it's it's called a distraction which is Trump needs any distractions that he can get because of what's going on here with his own scandal and with Robert Mueller's investigation And I don't want to sidetrack this conversation because it's not about that. Um, But when you have this major thing going on and, you know, all these people in your campaign are getting indicted and you don't want people to be talking about that, then you give them something else to talk about. And he knew that this was such a politically charged decision that everybody was going to be talking about that. Okay, so now they're talking about this and they're no longer. Well, I mean, some of us are still talking about Russia, but at least for the moment, it deflects, you know, the attention onto a different issue. Yeah, but it's just still negative attention. But I and I just wanted to add on sure. to the the comment I made about evangelical Christians. They have since the 1980s, we've seen them um, rise as a political force, and I think that that also is a big factor into why he's pandering to this base. Well, who's up for election this Tuesday, but Roy Moore, who's much of his base is made up of evangelical Christians. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. I mean, it sounds outrageous, but I wouldn't put it past this president to make a decision like this in support of Roy Moore, um, you know, to get people out and excited to vote and, you know, dog whistle to this evangelical right wing base. I mean, I think that could be a large part of it. I don't think it's that outrageous knowing this president and how he operates that he would play so fast and loose with the conflict in the Middle East just to get votes for for someone like Roy Moore. I mean, but he would. Like, he would. You know, like, that's the type of person that he is. He absolutely yeah, would. Absolutely. And I just want to throw the phone number out there, guys. Please. If you uh, are listening and you want to chime in, feel free to give us a call at 212-650-6903. And we've been seeing Donald Trump go extra hard in supporting and rallying um, up for Roy Moore over, like, this past weekend. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. You know, and the other thing is, this is, is that... The majority of Israeli Jews don't support this move. So right. they were. I was reading an article yesterday that said something like eighty percent of the people living in Israel, Israel, that recognize or that are Israeli Jews, do not support this um, because they also think for two one of two reasons: either a they fall on the left, you know, and they're against their own government's um, occupation of certain, you know, and the building of settlements, um, just like uh, you know Jews like myself and Jackie are. You know, they 
obviously recognize that Israel has a right to exist and that it should be a Jewish state, but they also feel that it's not right for Israelis who came from Jews that left the, um, you know, Eastern Europe after the Holocaust uh, in order to escape oppression right. and a genocide to then be perpetuating that kind of oppression on other people. Right. From the right, there are Israeli Jews that disagree with this because what they say is this puts it more, makes it more likely that there's not going to be a two-state solution, that there will be instead a one-state solution. And what's going to happen if there's a one-state solution is either A, you have to only give Arab Israelis limited rights, um, especially in terms of the right to vote, or B, if you give them full rights, then there's a good possibility that Arab Israelis will start to become, um, you know, at least equal in the Knesset, which is their legislature, or the majority, at which point the right-wing Israelis will say, well, then it's no longer a Jewish state. Right. Um, because, it, you know, the whole idea was that their whole parliament is made up only of Israeli Jews, although th- now there's some Israeli-Arab Jews because obviously there's been race mixing going on in Israel the same right. way there's race mixing here. So, And I would, I would also add that I think a lot of Israelis are against this simply because of the threat of violence that it poses, that this can result in a really violent... Um, you know, uprising out of anger for this decision. And I think that's something that, you know, Trump wants. I could see him wanting violence to erupt from the situation. I mean, keep in mind that right now he's fighting for a Muslim ban in this country. And I think that he can drum up a violent situation in Israel and then go to Americans and say, hey, look, look at how violent these Muslims are being. We need a Muslim ban. This is something, you know, he's using this, I think, as a way to politicize issues domestically. I don't really think that he cares too much about foreign policy. I think he cares about winning elections and and creating more domestic support. And so between, you know, issuing support for Roy Moore through this decision and creating more support for his Muslim ban, I think that, you know, those are what he's focused. Those are the things that he's focusing on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Selena? Oh, yes. Thank you. We actually have a caller who would like to leave a comment, a very special caller by the name of Stanley Fritz. Are you there? Hey, guys, I'm here. Hello. Hey, Stanley, so you listening? Yes, I am. What do you think? So I heard um, Melissa and Jackie talking about, like, a lot of Israeli people are against this move um, to make Jerusalem the capital. And, you know, I have a hard time believing um, that Israeli citizens are against this or, or, like, want a two-state solution because they keep supporting Netanyahu. And he feels empowered enough to do this, and it's not just because a handful of people want this. He has to have some kind of mandate or majority. Stanley, stay on the line. Jackie has a direct response. I mean, I would argue that it's as true, you know, Israeli citizens want Netanyahu as much as Americans want Trump. You know, there are ways to manipulate elections where the extremists get out and vote for him. And I think that's become increasingly more true. I don't think that, you know, I think there are a lot of moderate and liberal Israelis that do not support Netanyahu and do not support this decision. Um, So, you know, I I get what you're saying, that politically it would seem as though this is something that um, Israelis are all unanimously for, but I think that they are as diverse in their political opinions as we are. Right. No, I would agree with that. I would also add that, you know, we have to recognize that Israel does not have the same type of government that we have. It's coalition governing. Um, They don't use the type of electoral system we use and that. uh, So it's an interesting thing where even people within the coalition of governing um, or Bibi Netanyahu's coalition of governing don't necessarily share his views, but they have formed this coalition government um, because of the manner in which the unicameral system is set up there. Stanley? Yeah, you know, and, and I appreciate that, that of the information, but the fact still remains, whether it was Netanyahu or not, 
the people that suffer the most from this are Palestinians all the time. And Netanyahu, who's winning on these elements that he's doing without anyone's permission, and now he's got the capital, and then now a whole bunch of Palestinian people are probably going to suffer even more because he's going to use a heavy hand with the military. So, like, if people care, they're not caring hard enough because a lot of Palestinian people are suffering. Yeah, Stanley, I think that you make an excellent point there. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for calling in. If you have another question or comment, um, you can call back. And, guys, if you are listening and want to leave uh, or want to share your thoughts on this, feel free to call us up at 212-650-6903. Jackie? Well, I think Alyssa had a quick point. Yeah, no, what I was going to say is today is actually the 70th anniversary of the UN's Declaration on Human Rights. And and I think it's interesting because it sort of ties into what Stanley would just, was just saying, that the Palestinian people are the people that are really suffering in this. And that's true. I think of a lot of American Jews in some ways don't realize just how politically fraught the situation mm-hmm. is in some ways. They've, you know, they either haven't been to Israel, which I have. They haven't gone to the West Bank, which I have. Um and they don't realize the way in which the Israeli government is treating uh, the Palestinian people and oppressing them. And I think if some of the American Jews here, whether they're on the left or the right, realize just how much this is connected back to our own struggle as Jews. And that's why I bring up the U.N. Declaration on Human Rights, because that was created in 1948 after the Holocaust, when Jewish people sort of were making their pilgrimage back to the land that they called Judea, which, as an aside, is is part of the reason why there's so much conflict over this land to begin right. with is that all three major religious groups claim that their religions were started in this place. Um, that's another show we could you know spend yeah. hours talking about that. Um, but you know I think it's really important for American Jews to realize just what's going on there um, and to realize that you know it's not okay to oppress people. Um, because we were oppressed peoples and we're perpetual, you know, we have to perpetuate, um, you know, going forward to make sure we're not oppressing other peoples and not do the same thing that was done to us because it's right. wrong. I think we're going to get into that when we come back from break. Stay tuned, guys. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Just coming back from break, we're talking about Trump's declaration that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel um, and the implications and outrage that this has caused across the world. Um, And even like American Jews, a lot of, you know, people who just don't lean right and aren't radical are saying this is a horrible decision. And, you know, Jackie, I'll just throw it back to you. Yeah, but many people are saying that this is a good decision, right? Many Americans are in support or supportive, including Chuck Schumer, New York U.S. Senator, right? So why do you think some people are so vehement about supporting this decision, even people that typically go up against Trump? I would have to say, and, and, and from my, for what I would think, it would have to be something that stemmed deeply into Islamophobia. I think that like that's just been a trend for the la- going on two decades, especially after uh, 9-11, where you have people who are less sympathet- sympathetic to Palestinian oppression, and they more so feel like... You know, they they, they look at uh, the the Muslim community as violent, as terrorists. And we see this perpetuated continually in right wing media and even from our president. So it's like if you think these people are terrorists, then, you know, you're not really going to you're not really going to side with them. And I I also wanted to just bring up that um, the rape Palestinians and Arabs feel uh, it's horrible. Right. You you know, we, we couldn't get a Palestinian voice here, but. 
I'm from their perspective, I can only imagine what this must mean because oh God, we've yeah. seen so many administrations um, support uh, Israeli oppression and occupation of Palestinians. And I heard one activist say, I'm not even surprised because the United States is a colonizer. So it only right. makes sense that they would support the colonization of another dominant country into um, a people who do not have as many resources. So, you, you know, it's, right. It seems to be in line. And with it's, it's, it's a drop in the policy. bucket. Yeah. Okay. It's a drop That's in the bucket. That's what some people are saying. Alyssa. Yeah. I, listen, I think sort of from the uh, I mean, there's my perspective and then there's the perspective of American Jews that support this decision. My perspective, as I've said, is I do not support this decision as an American Jew. I've said earlier in the segment, I absolutely support Israel and I support Israel's right to exist. At the same time, I do not support Israel. Israel's right to oppress. I do think there needs to be a solution where Palestinians are given their own state and the full rights of a sovereign state. Um, That said, the way American Jews look at this is that like really one of two ways, either a this is our land, period. You know, Palestinians have no right to it whatsoever, which is a historical and not historically accurate at all. Or B, there is this perception that sort of comes from a racist place um, or a place of fear uh, where American Jews believe that. Um, that there are Arabs and Muslims that call for death to Israel. They don't think Israel has the right to exist. They do not. They think all Jews should be killed. Um, there's a, you know, that. And so the, and they say, like, why should we play into the hands of these terrorists? They think that um, that Hamas, which does have terrorist ties, or at least part of it does, um, is just completely a terrorist group, right. that all these people are terrorists, that they're backwards people, that they should you know, not be allowed to have a say in a Jewish state, um, which, side note, if they had their own state, then, you know, they, which that's sort of a big sticking point is East Jerusalem. Um, even if you were able to find a way to divide the West Bank out from Israel and say that we were going to give Arabs a sovereign state, there right. would still be this sticking point over who gets to control uh, East Jerusalem. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, so the way these Jews look at it, these right wing Jews here in America is that, you know, if you give somebody an inch, they're going to take a mile. And so if they give Palestinians inch, then they're going to take a mile and they're going to continue to attack Israel. And eventually, um, you know, there will be no Israeli state or they will try and destroy Israel because, you know, there are a small group. We have to acknowledge there are a small group of people that do think that Israel shouldn't exist, but they blow it up to make it seem like that's everybody. Right. Um, And so that's where I think this is coming from for them. So they just they're like, you know what, this is our land. We have the right to it. We don't think they should have any right to it. And we want the president to recognize Jerusalem as the capital um, because that's where the Knesset is. That's where the seat of government is. And, you know, so there's no reason why the United States shouldn't recognize that. Right. I mean, I I will speak from my own experience as a Jew growing up in America, growing up in a reform synagogue, um, which, you know, was where I did learn about Israel and not about the occupation. Um, And, you know, I'm sure there are as many types of Jews as there are Jews or as many ways of being Jewish as there are Jews. Right. So I'm not going to speak for everybody's experience, but certainly my own. And I think that a lot of people have a similar shared experience to mine was that I was taught in my religious upbringing and I went to Hebrew school for many, many years. was that, you know, Israel belonged to Jews and that Palestinians believed that Jews had no right to exist. Not even that Israelis had no right to exist, but that Jews had no right to exist. And they wanted to, 
you know, wipe Jews off the face of the earth. This is what I was taught growing up, right? This is what was put forth to me. And it wasn't until I was an adult and I met Palestinians who were like, no, no, that's not how we roll. We want our own right to exist. We want to not be occupied. We want the right to return to our own land. You get to go on a free birthright trip. You know, it's called your birthright as a Jew to return home to our home and, you know, experience Israel in its, in its entirety and have this great 10 day trip. And we can't even go home and visit our families because they, they've been displaced. Right. And so it wasn't until much later that I sort of had to unwire my brain and relearn what was really happening. But it was a very effective strategy to get me as an American Jew to really just side with Israel without questioning because it seemed complicated. It seemed like, OK, there's two clear sides, the side that wants me to exist and the side that doesn't. And I'm just going to support Israel without questioning it. And that's a problem. And I think that there are a lot of Jews, especially left leaning Jews, right, especially Jews that vote Democratic, that support progressive causes that are consider themselves progressives and truly are on most issues, except when it comes to Israel, because it's uncomfortable, because Jews have this experience of trauma, right, through the Holocaust, through pogroms that led their families here. You know, they carry this weight of, okay, we survived this thing that many didn't. And so we need to carry on our own legacy. So there's a lot of weight that Jews carry there, but they're using that as justification to oppress another group of people. And that cannot persist. And when we close our eyes to what's happening and, you know, ignore it and pretend that this is something that's happening in another part of the world that has nothing to do with us as American Jews, that is dangerous because it allows our government to make decisions using our name and on our behalf that we do not consent to. Right. Absolutely. Um, Listen, you know, just to add on to that, which is I think also I mean, I agree. I I was taught the same thing. And I think a lot of other American Jews are also. Um, But to add on to that, I also think part of it is sort of an ignorance on the behalf of American Jews that don't actually realize what the situation is in the West Bank um, at all. Uh, You know, they don't realize that Israelis can come and go freely. um, And yet there's checkpoints that, you know, tell Palestinians when they can come in, when they can go out. Um, There's constant security. There's people spying on each other all the time and reporting things back to the Israeli government, even when things are not going on. People feel like they can't speak freely about political issues that, um, you know, are important. Um, There is a total control. There are literally lockdown neighborhoods where Israelis are um, building settlements at the direction of Bibi Netanyahu um, in places that were not considered theirs. And what they're finding is that once those lands become occupied by Israelis, um, they largely will not go back to being Palestinian controlled. Um, You know, and so I think if more American Jews who have said in their own lives, never again, never again, will we let somebody like Hitler come to power and put Jews in ghettos and put Jews in concentration camps and they just don't realize how bad things are. Now, that's not to say that things are as bad as they were in Poland during the 1940s. They are not um, in some ways. And in some ways, they are. Some might argue that they are. Exactly. Um, You know, that's what I said. In some ways, they are. In some ways, they aren't. Um, But, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of the brainwashing. It's also a matter of being brainwashed and then refusing to open your eyes to what's going on. Um, And just to plug... You know, I I hate to plug this show now, given the sort of 
situation going on with like the sexual harassment type stuff. But the last season of Transparent, um, they go to Israel and they really address this. And there's an episode where, you know, one of the characters who's an American Jew goes to Ramallah um, and goes and sees really what's going on and how the Palestinian people are being treated. And yes, this is a fictional TV show, but they do a really good job um, of being accurate about the situation that's going on there. Um, And if you haven't seen it or if you don't know what's going on, but you want to like learn about about it more in a way that you can watch sort of a fictional American TV show. Yeah. I would recommend watching the past season of Transparent, not for the LGBTQ issues, but to learn more about the Israel-Palestine conflict. Selena? Yeah, so, you, you know, all that being said, um, I think it's important to discuss why it matters for the U.S. to take a side, and if it even does matter. Because, like, I understand, like, on the surface, uh, the U.S. was supposed to uh, display some type of neutrality and be that uh, negotiator yeah, okay. between the between both sides. Yeah. And that's the reason why um, no other president made such a declaration like this. And Trump is like what Trump did is seen as so radical. But on the other side, the flip side of things, you know, under the Obama administration, the U.S. gave the Israeli military thirty eight million dollars. So it, it seems like there's like. It seems like there's almost like this facade where the U.S. was appearing to be very neutral and trying to bring right. together both sides. But and, and it seems like Trump disrupted that. But did he or did he just simply say what he called was a reality and just say instead of instead of trying to play both sides, I'm going to keep it real. And this is the side that we've always been on. Right. I mean, I brought that up at the beginning of the segment. I think that's a great point is that the U.S., you know, while attempting to be or, you know, claiming to be this quote unquote honest broker really hasn't been, you know, just two sided in this. They they have definitely taken the side of supporting Israel um, and, you know, funding um, the Israeli military, certainly. Um, And so I think that's a great point. You know, is it just Trump? pulling the wool off of everybody's eyes and saying, well, this is what we've already been doing, so I'm just going to go ahead. Or, you know, is it more than that? I mean, it sounds like the question about whether or not you would rather somebody be racist to your face than, you know, be racist, uh, you know, in like sort of an underground way where you're not really sure whether it's racism or not. You know, I mean, like... In some ways, I, I sort of agree with that, but I also sort of feel like Trump is doing this because uh, this is a Trump thing to do, which is anytime somebody tells Donald Trump, don't do X because it's not a good idea to do X, Donald Trump hears that as, I should definitely do X. Yeah, so, right. you know, and, and I, that sort of also comes from his political inexperience. Um, you know, like Jared Kushner's over there trying to work out a peace deal. Everybody's telling him, like, you know, don't do this because we're sort of maybe not getting where we want to get that fast, but we're sort of starting to have some legitimate talks about how we might be able to solve this issue. And then all of a sudden Donald's like, well, I think I have this great idea. I'm going to do this. I got a this. deal that I'm going to put <laughs> um, in place. Right. You know, and then, yeah. as I said, circling back, he doesn't get anything for it. So, yeah. you know, so, that's the most perplexing thing about the whole thing. Selena? Well, the thing is, what are some of the long-term implications? Like, what is this going to lead to? And I've heard some Palestinians say this was a declaration of war against right. Palestine. And then I've heard other people say that's a that's hyper, hyperbolic. hyperbolic. Yeah. So what do you I think? I think it, it's entirely possible that this could lead to war. I mean, especially if the embassy 
moves, right? So in six months, every six months, the United States president has to sign a waiver whether or not to keep deciding whether or not to keep the um, U.S. embassy in Israel in Tel Aviv or to move it elsewhere to Jerusalem. So, you know, maybe in six months, the president decides that it's time to move the embassy and that he really wants to go full steam ahead with this plan. Um, I think that could definitely trigger a war. I mean, that's how fraught the situation is. I mean, there was practically a war almost popped off like a year and a half ago mm-hmm. over like nothing, right? There was like no real impetus right. for it whatsoever. And then all of a sudden people started firing rockets and then people started firing rockets back. And then there was this like couple week period where things were sort of really, really tense and we didn't know if uh, like a whole war was going to break out. And there was no politically fraught decision at that point in time. So, you know, this is like in some ways a powder keg and yeah, we have absolutely. to handle it with kid gloves um, and Donald Trump has kid hands but he doesn't know how to handle anything with kid gloves <laughs> yeah right you know he's like he's lost his gloves he's like the guy that shows up to the Lego castle and is like let me smash the Lego castle as, as good as I can right. um, and see what happens next yeah. so yeah. he's he has no intent of ever being diplomatic in anything well at least that's what um, the, the past and, and uh, his history has shown us but you know I kind of wanted to talk about, like, you know, moving forward now. Uh, and I understand that um, it was reported on the news this morning that one of the um, tunnels that Hamas was using was, like, blown up or um, destroyed. And the thing is, like, I understand how and why it's it's a threat and it's a danger to, like, Israelis and to the, and the society there in whole. But then again, I feel like Palestinians feel like they're, like they're naked and extremely vulnerable. And if they don't have any defense system, they are going to not be in existence. And especially with the anti-Islamic sentiment coming from the West— uh, whether that's America or France, you know, mm. it's like they feel extremely vulnerable. And I think that's even why we have Hamas, because it's seen as if we don't fight back, we won't be here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Right. There's there's this like chicken or the egg kind of situation. And, you know, I think uh, talking to a lot of American Jews that support this decision, one thing that you hear time and time again is, well, they they're violent. They right. don't want us to exist like they're the violent ones. We're just protecting ourselves. But that's not true. Right. That's not you know, while there is I, if, I can't even believe I'm about true. to say there's violence on both sides, but they're absolutely <laughs> to quote our, our president. Um, but, you know, while it's true that there is violence on both sides. I mean, it's not there's this there's this perceived idea that is Israel is just acting on the defensive and they're not aggressively taking over land and occupying territories and causing violence themselves and I I think that this comes with this fear of if we're not on the offense, if we're not doing everything we can to hold on to this land, we'll be, you know, annihilated. Um and so there's this big misconception that it's just, you know, Israel sitting back and saying, no, hey, like we're just protecting ourselves when really I think that's happening in Palestine, you know, with Palestinians as well. Yeah, Osa. No, I mean, listen, I, I agree with all that. I don't really have much else to add. I like my final closing comments on this situation will be or is, are that, you know, if you're an American Jew, it is long past time for you to open your eyes to the complete situation. Um, And, you know, I said this earlier, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's really important, which is as Jews, we are taught 
never again. Never let a genocide happen to our people again. Never let an oppression happen to our people again. And not just to our people, to everybody. That's the Martin Niemöller quote, right? You know, first they came for the socialists. I wasn't a socialist, mm-hmm. so I didn't speak out. And, and then they came for this person and that person, and I said nothing. And then they came for me. When Jews do not speak out against this type of oppression uh, because they are scared to wade into this conversation due to the fact it affects them directly or indirectly as a Jew and, you know, the fact that the Israel is the, you know, quote unquote, home of, and birthplace of the Jewish people, um, they are being the silent in the same way that people were silent during the 1940s when Jews were being exterminated. And that is not okay. So my, you know, what I would say is if you're an American Jew, we don't always have to agree. We can agree to disagree on certain issues, but I think, you know, it's not okay to put the wool over your eyes and pretend as though this stuff is not going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Selena. Yeah, no, those were great points. And I would just like, I guess, ask the question of like, will there ever be a two state solution? Like, I mean, it was it took years to even get to like this point before Trump made that declaration, because I know that like there are some people advocating for Eastern Jerusalem to belong to the Palestinians and Western Jerusalem to belong to Israel. And it's like, you know, Jackie, I know you're about to close and maybe you can answer this question. Do you think that can happen? I mean, not in the, with Trump's direction, certainly not. But I, th- I think that, you know, in, in asking that question, can there be a one or two state solution or, you know, what is going to result from this? I think to sort of echo what Alyssa said, as American Jews, we play a tremendous role in upholding what is happening in Israel and, and the occupation of Palestinian territories. And I think it's not necessarily up to us to decide what is best for Israel-Palestine, but it is our responsibility as American Jews who are progressive, who are left-leaning, who you know actively fight back against oppression, to take a good look at the ways that we are complicit in oppression, especially in Israel, the way that we fund and support and uphold oppression through the occupation and, you know, question ourselves. What are we doing? Are we ignoring this issue because it makes us uncomfortable because we don't, you know, we're afraid for ourselves? You know, like Alyssa made that great point that never again, right? Never again. We say that when we talk about the Holocaust, when we talk about oppression of Jews, but because we were oppressed as Jews does not mean that we can act, cannot actively be oppressors. And I think that it's important for us as an American community that has a huge role, as we've seen here, you know, the actions of the American president are playing out and have tremendous reverberations across the world. So I think that as American Jews, it is our responsibility to take a good look at ourselves and the way that we are upholding what is happening in Israel-Palestine and, you know, change the course of our direction. Absolutely. And on that note, we do have to take another quick break, but don't go anywhere, guys. When we come back, we're jumping right into some of our favorite stories of the week, the ones we love, the ones we hated, and the ones about all of these Democratic politicians stepping down. So stay tuned. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Happy Sunday, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs and Jackie Cohen. We just wrapped up a great conversation about Israeli occupation in Palestine and how Trump just made everything worse and possibly <laughs> leads to what to do. <laughs> I know. I mean, hey, this is a 
Trump world and everything gets worse, apparently. So uh, now we're going to talk about some of our favorite news stories of the week, the ones we love, the ones we love to hate. And, uh, of course, guys, you can chime in. Uh, the number is 212-650-6903. You should also tweet us at BeHerd underscore radio. Or, or you, you can should leave a comment on yeah. our Facebook Please. Live we'll read feed. it. We will read it if it comes up in time. There's like a slight delay, so. But post it. But post it anyway. All right, guys. So I'm a bit conflicted. Uh, Senator Al Franken and John Conyers stepped down over the past week because of allegations of sexual harassment. We know with John Conyers, who was uh, one of the longest serving congressmen in the House of Representatives and the the longest serving African-American at that. Uh, He was one person who helped pass um, Martin Luther King Jr., as a federal holiday, and he did some other historic things in our country. Um, but it turns out he settled uh, sexual harassment suits back in 2015, and he used like uh, taxpayer money to do so. So that he stepped down, and then uh, Senator Al Franken stepped down over um, you know that photograph where he was grabbing a woman's breast, and you know some other. Well, he was. Um, it came out that he had forced kissed. Forcibly kissed. Yeah. Wait, wasn't oh, well, Donald Trump accused of that huh. this week too? Wait, <laughs> and every week and since weeks before the election. Well, and well, well, well I well, clearly remember Donald Trump saying, "I use a tic tac. Yeah. I just start kissing them, yeah, and then they let I you just do and it. then I just grab her. I don't the, even ask. I don't even ask. Well, even though he admitted and apologized for that, lately he's actually been denying that that's his voice. Billy but Bush said it is his. He voice. denied that that's yeah. his voice. Yeah. He was like, "We don't think that's." He said, "We don't Excuse think it's my voice." Excuse me, but yeah. yeah, no, but but here's the question that I have. That's because hilarious. Stats show that Republican voters are way more tolerant towards sexism and sexual harassment, meaning that's why we're more is, is, is winning <laughs> in Alabama. <laughs> but the thing is, I understand Democrats, we like to take the moral high ground, but now we're leaving like Al Franken's seat up for grabs. And like we see what's happening in Detroit. So the thing is, like, I'm all for it, but are we shooting ourselves in the foot in this I process? I don't know. I mean, I, I hear that a lot, but I also think, like, look at this past election and look at how many women, trans women, women of color were just elected. Um, to you know who were running for office for the first time like i think that there's this like fatalistic view that's like oh because these men were taken down who could possibly fill this role and i'm like a woman could fill this role right and no, I, but will she be voted will a left-leaning politician fill this seat i think so. i mean who knows right like there's it's it's well Connors endorses his son so yeah. and in al franken's seat um uh, donald woman. trump won that state right so they're republican Right. right. I, you know, I just wanted to correct something you said earlier about the you said, you know, Republicans don't seem to, you know, be, you know, care so much about the issue as like Democrats do and take the moral high ground. I think Republicans do care about it, but only when it's a Democrat because they're <laughs> hypocrites, whereas like Democrats feel like there's sort of this moral high ground that has to be taken regardless of whether it's somebody in their own party or right. somebody in the opposite party. Um, you know, so it's just like that's the thing that bothers me most about it is that, you know, I'm not saying that Democrats should do something differently. I think Democrats are doing the right thing, actually. Yeah, me too. I think it's frustrating to me that, you know, when Bill Clinton, you know, got a, you know, a blowjob in the Oval Office, it, the Republicans like heads went on fire as if it was like the worst thing to ever happen to America. And now they're literally about to potentially elect an alleged 
likely possible child molester in Alabama because, according to them, it's better to vote for a Republican than a liberal, even if the Republican, you know, has been accused of touching 14-year-old girls. Right, but I think the the conflict comes when, you know, there's... I agree. Obviously, Democrats are holding themselves accountable for this kind of behavior. And we see that because Conyers and Al Franken are stepping down. But at the same time, there's a debate. You know, a lot of people on the left don't think they should step down. Right. For the exact same reasons that they don't think that Roy Moore should step out of the election. Right. Because they would rather have this Democrat in office than any Republican. And so, you know, there's a it's. It's such a catch-22, right? You're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because right. you're damned if you do, and then a Republican steps into that into that seat, but you're damned if you don't, because then you have somebody who has been accused of sexual harassment or abuse um, you know, remaining in power. And so it's not an easy conversation to have. Obviously, I agree with Alyssa. I think the right thing is happening. I think these men should step down, um, but it's, it's a difficult conversation. I don't think anybody's completely right or wrong. Well, it, yeah, like you said, um, it, it's tough, and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to see what happens with these empty seats because if things shift more red and more right, then definitely we're gonna be screwed either way. Guys, be sure to tune in and chime in at two one two six five zero six nine zero three. So this week in racism, huh. um, Steve King, who is a representative from the fourth district of Iowa, um, said. That diversity is not our strength. And then he quoted the Hungarian prime minister who said, quote, mixing cultures will not lead to a higher quality of life, but a lower one. Um, You know, and this is also the same week that I just want to remind you in other news, Roy Moore, on top of being uh, an alleged child molester, rapist, etc. And uh, just all around bad person. Roy Moore also said this week that black families were better off during slavery. So, you know, we. Um, Gee. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, this week in Republican racism, you guys want to react? Oh, no, what, was that a direct quote? Uh, no, not, not a direct quote. I am paraphrasing. That was some in substance. Um, but essentially what he was talking about is like the family structure um, and said that like black families stayed together better <gasps> during slavery, which, by the way, is also completely historically inaccurate. Yeah, I'm sure black yeah. families stayed together really well when they were ripped apart by their owners and, you know, sold to other people. Like, like, that is, I mean, it's preposterous. I have no words. Well, I'll say this. Um, studies actually show that the more diverse your company and business is, the better your bottom line. The reason being is because when you have a diverse group of people in a marketing room or, you know, in a business meeting, number one, you're less likely to make marketing resp- uh, mistakes like that epic Pepsi ad, right, which right. appropriated Black Lives Matter images and a number of other uh, marketing failures, which we've seen from companies do. Because if you ask me, I just think they don't have enough black people to say like, hey, don't turn do that. In, <laughs> like that Dove commercial where a white where a black woman turned into a white woman. Like you need somebody in there to say, hey, bad you idea. Just had one person in there that was like, mm, you probably shouldn't. Just, yeah. Like, look at it again. Like, just, you know. 
And on top of that, um, when you have diversity of thought, um, it also shows that your business does better. So I think that these people need to come out of the racist thinking of the 1930s that they're in and just step into time. Because, I mean, like you, you have companies and studies showing that it's just false. I mean, let, let alone students, humane. Students do better in diverse classrooms, right? Yeah. When they're interacting with people with a diverse set of experiences from them. So, right, you're... He's just the, wrong. The more the more diversity that you're around, the less implicit bias you'll have, the more trusting and understanding you'll be as a person. Like it betters you as an individual. So to think that somehow segregation is the best <laughs> way of life, it's just not true. And like that's that stupidity and ignorance that hurts that that hurts us as a country. I think you give them too much credit by calling it stupidity and ignorance. I, I think it's just straight I think, up I, racism. I think racism is embedded in stupidity and ignorance because I think that if people understood how understood how people work and, and understand that like just because you're black you're not uh, inferior to someone who's white and you have that type of education then you'll have a better understanding of the world so it's it's in there as well no I agree I agree um, I, I'm gonna shift gears for a second I want to talk about something that is you know very local to here but I know it's not just going on here um, so there was a big protest this week in New York City um, there were many what? big yeah, protests right. this I'm week like, which one <laughs> okay so there was many big protests but I'm talking specifically about one which is public defenders public defenders protested that was not the one I thought like there I were so many I was rolling through like five or six of them um, that was not the one I thought you were gonna but that's great that there were so many so, yeah. Um, and the reason why these public defenders were protesting um, is because ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, are showing up at courthouses and they are snatching people from courthouses, um, you know, to bring them to immigration detention. And what public defenders are saying is that this is creating a situation um, both in civil court and in criminal court where people aren't showing up to court because they're afraid right. um, that they may get snatched up by immigration. And so now you are creating a situation where, you know, let's say somebody gets like, I don't know, a, a you know, some kind of minor summons for littering and they have to go to criminal court to deal with it. And maybe it's even a bogus summons and, and they were falsely given this summons or maybe they actually were littering. But either way, um, when they don't show up to court because they're afraid that they might get picked up by ICE at the courthouse, they then end up having a warrant and that makes them even more vulnerable um, and creates multiple issues. Um, they're saying that victims are scared to go to court um, to report yeah. crimes because they're afraid that, it, you know, if they're undocumented, and they're a victim of the crime and they have to go to court to testify against somebody um, or to meet with the DA's office that they may be picked up. Um, and also in terms of civil court, um, when people have a civil dispute, like with a landlord, um, where the landlord shuts their heat off and they would normally go to court and be like, you can't shut my heat off. People are not wanting to go to court because they're afraid that they're going to be picked up at court. And this isn't just happening here in New York City. Um, this is happening all over the country. There's a big push uh, to try and get the government governor to tell, you know, basically to sign a law that says that, you know, a federal agents, um, except under limited circumstances, are not allowed to just come into courthouses and apprehend people. Um, and just like, you know, this is wrong. Um, if somebody, if immigration is looking for somebody and they have legitimate documentation that says they can pick that person up, um, and, you know, obviously we can have a longer conversation one day about 
immigration and, you know, whether or not the Trump administration should be doing this. But then, you know, that's fine. Um, but they just they shouldn't be going to the courthouses to pick those people up. They need to find a, another way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's just so sad and disheartening how um, we fought so hard to get uh, immigrants immigrant and, and undocumented workers out of the shadows and how they're being forcibly pushed back into the shadows yeah. to the point where they won't even report uh, domestic abuse or, you know, any type of abuse or exploitation. They're just sitting there and taking it because they're scared that, hey, if I open my mouth, me or, or my family might get shipped back to a country that I'd never known or haven't been there in 10 to 20 years. I know. And I think that it makes it's not only that people who are undocumented, I, I would presume, are afraid to report these crimes, but it makes them um, more of a target to predators who know that they won't likely report these crimes because of fear of, you know, retaliation or fear of being deported. So it's a huge, huge issue. No, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, guys. And I also wanted to bring uh, up Donald Trump. So we know that he has waged an all out war against the media, something that he calls fake news despite the fact that he perpetuates fake news all the time. Yeah. And so, he watches it. <laughs> and he watches it. So um, he's been going extra hard against CNN. Uh, just in the past uh, 24 hours, he said, and I, and I quote his tweet, CNN's slogan is CNN, the most trusted name in news. Everyone knows this is not the truth. This is not true. This that this could, in fact, be a fraud on the American public. There are many <laughs> outlets that are far more trusted than fake news. CNN, uh, their slogan should be CNN, the least trusted name in news. Yeah. And on top of that, he also has been attacking F- the FBI and the agency itself because they're actually investigating um a foreign government infiltrating our our election system and basically chipping away at our democracy. So, I mean, look, he is at war and declaring wars and starting wars. He doesn't care. He doesn't. Um, you know, interesting. So, two things on this. One. I thought that the pro-law enforcement people voted for Donald Trump because he was so pro-law enforcement, but he spent the past week um, literally attacking law enforcement. So, you know, the quote unquote blue lives matter people might want to rethink the whole support for Trump thing. They don't even think like that. No, I know because they're not smart enough to think like that. Um, But then there's a second level of this, which is Donald Trump is great at projecting. Donald Trump is like, I am rubber and you are glue and anything you say bounces off me and sticks on you. If Donald Trump is guilty of something, he will find a way to say that somebody else, mostly Hillary Clinton, is guilty of the very thing uh, that he is you know being is guilty of himself because this is what people who project do Um, this is like a classic case for like um, you know psychological uh, you know study um, (laughs) on uh, how you blame other people for the those things that that thing that you are guilty for and on top of which apparently now we're saying they're saying the White House is saying that following Donald Trump slurring his speech the other day he's going to go for a physical Um, is he going to see Dr. Uh, Longhair, I might have just taken a bong hit. Um, And are they going to check his mental health? Because, you know, the other day he was talking about um, rocket fuel and, you know, the energy thing. And then he started talking about Rocket Man at Korea um, when he was at this crazy campaign rally uh, because he apparently thinks that he's still running for president (laughs) against Hillary Clinton. I'm just so confused about all of these things. Like, what the heck is going on, I would highly recommend people read. There was a really long 
long article, but really great um, article in the Times this month or this weekend called yeah. "Inside Trump's Hour by Hour Battle for Self Preservation." It was written by Maggie Haberman, Glenn Thrush, who I don't know how he hasn't stepped down yet because he has been accused of sexual assault and harassment um, or harassment, not assault. Um, and Peter Baker that kind of goes through Trump's mindset and how he operates each day. And apparently he watches Fox and Friends. Not only does he watch it each day, but he like DVRs it when he can't watch it in the morning because it's like it's comforting to him. It's like a soothing video. It's like does some of us work. Some of us like watch puppy videos on YouTube to <laughs> relax at the end of the day. But he watches Fox and Friends he to needs feel to better have about his himself. Ego stroke. When, yeah, when he's not at Fox and Friends, he's at the Winter White House. Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago. Margo Lago. Yeah, it's 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 horrible. And I think that the reason why he watches Fox is because that's the only uh, network that will perpetuate uh, all fake news and propaganda that just boosts his esteem and ego and probably makes him feel really good about himself because he knows how much he's hated. Goebbels would be so proud. <laughs> yeah. For, yeah. For you know, keeping this this on theme today. Yeah, definitely, guys. But on that note, we do have to take another break. But don't go anywhere. We're going to continue the conversations going right here right now on let your voice be heard I wanna make love, love, love. and we are back um all right guys so you know let's take it back let's let's go back to you know before all this Fun stuff started. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so back in um, 1941, uh, there was a war going on in Europe. Um, Japan was also involved in that war. The United States had not yet gotten involved, at least not explicitly. Uh, they were helping out some of the allies, mainly the British and the French, uh, by supplying uh, lots of goods and you know lots of military equipment. But they did not have any boots on the ground. Um, Behind the scenes, FDR sort of wanted to get involved in the war, uh, but the American public really was not interested at that point, um, and they really thought that we should stay out of it. Um, and then there became an attack, um, and this attack was on Pearl Harbor. And after the attack, uh, FDR went on the radio, and he said this was a day that would live in inf infamy. And he went to Congress, and he requested a declaration of war. Yeah, we, you know, we actually used to do that, mm -hmm. um, but that's another show. And uh, when he requested this declaration of war, Congress granted to it, and um, and we went to war. Uh, we joined World War II on the side of the Allies. Um, now. Before really that happened, um, what really was going on in Europe throughout the 1930s was this rise of nationalism. Uh, you saw this in Germany uh, through the rise of Hitler and the Nazi Party. Uh, you saw this going on in uh, Italy through the rise of Mussolini um, and in many other places throughout the Western, you know, Western Europe. Um, and that is sort of what was the catalyst for World War II. Um, and so, you know, that thing that was going on in Western Europe sort of has a large role and ties in a lot to some of the things that we are seeing today um, in that now we are living in a time where we're seeing rising nationalism, not just here in America, uh, but also in Europe. You know, like, for example, Brexit, um, there is largely a lot of anti-Muslim um, and even some anti-Jewish, uh, you know, sentiment going on in France. Uh, Marie Le Pen came the closest to ever winning an election uh, that the far right party in France has ever come. Um, and so there is a lot of connections that we are currently seeing. Um, as I mentioned earlier,
earlier in the show during the previous segment. Um, there is today is the 50th anniversary of the the UN's Declaration on Human Rights, and um, so we thought it would be really interesting to sort of have a conversation where we talk about how some of the historical events in the past tie into some of the oppression that we are now seeing uh, today. Because uh, you know that is there's a lot of connections there, um, and if we do not learn from history, we are bound to repeat it. Um, so it is extremely important that we continue to have these types of conversations um, and to discuss how the past is connected to the present um, and what we can do to learn from the past and to make sure that these things are not perpetuated going forward. Um, so on that note, um, and with that historical background, I'm going to open it up to the panel um, and I'm going to ask you guys, you know, what do you think about some of the things that we're currently seeing going on today um, and how they connect back to some of the things going on during the 1940s? Jackie? Well, what's interesting to sort of tie it back to the last segment is that we're still, you know, it's not even that we can compare things that happened then in the 1940s to what happened, what are happening today as being similar, but we're still dealing with, you know, the the effect of World War II and certainly the Holocaust when it comes to Israel and the way that Jews are looking at foreign policy, specifically dealing with Israel and Palestine. But, you know, I think that history is incredibly important. I think it's sort of underrated why it's so necessary to learn our history and to learn that, you know, just because we're in 2017 and not in 19, you know, 37, um, doesn't mean that we can't err in the same ways. And, you know, history tends to repeat itself often differently. But, you know, there are a lot of things that we did then that we might do now. And so I think it's it's important to look back at where we've come from so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that th- there's a lot to say there about like what happened uh, following World War Two and specifically the attack on Pearl Harbor um, and how it sort of led to a lot of anti-immigrant um, sentiment. Um, we see that um, we saw that uh, Japanese uh, Americans were forced into internment camps. Um, and I think that if you look at what's happening today, especially against the Muslim community, um, you know, there was an attack uh, again on uh, New York City uh, back in 20, uh, 2001. And that led to the rise of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment um, and a lot of anti-immigration as well. And those people who felt like that, uh, they voted and they won. And now we have a president who's literally enacting this this type of rhetoric and putting it into policy, putting it into legislation. We see that with the Muslim ban. Uh, we see what's going on with in Palestine and Israel. We just talked about that earlier today. But, yeah, I think that every time another country attacks U.S. soil, all of a sudden Americans are like, get these people of color out of here. They're terrorists. But it's like. When you look, when we examine how many white people, white men, or evangelical Christians who are white as well, how many times that they attack and 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 they attack people right in their own cities or homes or like churches or 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 people of color. We don't we don't we never really look at that as something that's more than an isolated incident. And I think that it's it's terrible and it's disheartening that we continue to make these mistakes. No, I think that's a great point. I I was reading an article the other day and it said that um, basically ninety nine point nine percent of terrorist attacks are uh, being perpetuated by men. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, do we ban men? Right. You know, that that was obviously a a rhetorical question. Um, But it just goes to show you. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought 
brought up the internment camps because it was something that I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, like liberals, they hold FDR up as this great progressive. And in terms of economics, he really was. You know, he had the New Deal and it was great. But at the same time, um, FDR was likely an anti-Semite. Um, he was um, very much somebody who wanted to get involved in a war and, you know, believed in the military industrial complex. And the biggest stain on his legacy uh, is the internment camps. And the internment camps is so connected to what you were talking about, Selena, in terms of the Muslim ban, because we are literally like one step away from that. Um, and it's based on largely the same thing, which is, you know, Japanese citizens attacked Pearl Harbor, uh, which is sort of how I started this segment. And thereafter, America got scared and literally put... It a- wasn't Japanese citizens. Who attacked Pearl Harbor? Oh, Japanese yeah. citizen. Not oh, I thought you not meant Japanese, like Japanese right. American. No, citizens. Japanese. Sorry. Yeah, no. So, so yeah, right. Japanese it. citizens yeah, attacked yeah, 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 Pearl yeah. Harbor, and then the U.S. government interned Japanese Americans into camps um, for pretty much the duration of the war. And so, I think it's really important that we have this conversation because it's like we are living at a time where. In theory, Donald Trump could turn around and start interring uh, or try to at least intern Muslim Americans. And can you talk about legally why that's not so? Because it sounds like at face value sort of outrageous. Like, no, like you can't do that in 2017. You can't just put people into camps in the United States. Can you talk about legally why that can potentially happen and why we are really one step away from that happening. Right. So, okay, the decision that Jackie's really alluding to is a decision called Korematsu versus the United States. Um, when the Japanese people were interned, uh, there was a lawsuit brought by a guy named Fred Korematsu, and he argued that the internment camps violated his civil rights. They violated due process under the law um, and that they violated a whole host of other uh, you know, provisions of the Constitution. The Supreme Court actually disagreed. The, what the Supreme Court said in the Korematsu decision, uh, which is looked upon as like literally the worst Supreme Court decision since Dred Scott um, that has ever come out. Um, And they agreed and they said that basically because America was in war and this was a very different kind of time, that essentially the president had the right to take actions that he wouldn't otherwise be able to take. Um, But to take that one step further and go back to Jackie's point, that decision was never explicitly overturned. Um, And the way the court essentially worked is the court has precedence, and then later on down the road, if the court no longer agrees with that precedent, they explicitly overturn that. A good example of that is in 1986 in Bowers v. Hardwick, the court ruled that sodomy was illegal and that gay mm-hmm. people um, could be prosecuted for sodomy. In 2003, the court overturned that decision explicitly in the Lawrence decision when they ruled that they were wrong and that they had gotten it wrong in Bowers. The Korematsu decision has never explicitly been overturned. Um, and even though... The courts have said it's a horrible decision um, and that, you know, they don't consider it to have any weight. The fact of the matter is it's still on the books. Um, And so at any time, the president really could just decide to start rounding up Muslims or rounding up any group of people and interring them and linking that to the war on terrorism. um, And, you know, they and say that he can do that. And then the Supreme Court, it would be up to the Supreme Court to either explicitly overrule Korematsu at that time or to say, you know what, we're going to let Korematsu 
Nazis stand. Yeah, this is perfectly acceptable under the Constitution. And that's a really scary thought. But I think, like, we have to back up and talk about for a second, like, where this is all coming from. And that's really, like, the nationalist thing. Because what was going on in 1930s Germany is very, very similar to what was going on here, in that people felt an economic strain. Hitler said he was going to make Germany great again for all intents and purposes. He blamed the Jews, um, just like Donald Trump is like blaming Muslims and immigrants. Like it literally, you know, I don't want to call Donald Trump Hitler um, because he's not Hitler or at least not yet. But then again, like Hitler wasn't Hitler until Hitler was Hitler. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, that is why I think this is such an important conversation, because some of the economic things that we're seeing here is, you know, and Stanley and I have had this conversation before, you know, white people felt economically disadvantaged. And that is part of the reason, along with racism on why they voted for Donald Trump. No, you're absolutely right. And guys, if you're listening, you want to chime in. Again, the number is 212-650-6903. No, I just wanted to chime in because um, I actually heard a report where it said that studies show that when um, citizens or, or individuals, particularly white people, feel at an economic disadvantage or they feel economically threatened, uh, they tend to group together and they tend to use this fear to um, ostracize the other and as Alyssa points out the other back then were Japanese folks right or or even Jews, Jews or even people who were like from Ireland at one point in this country and now that other happens to be uh, brown people from um, Arabic countries and um, from uh, Central America and other Hispanic speaking uh, countries so so again it, it's history it's repeating itself and it all stems down to white supremacy because at the heart of it it's like if white people feel like their privilege is being threatened in any type of way they have gone to the extent to kill steal and destroy anyone or thing that threatens their superiority and i just want to point out because it is really deep people of color particularly black people aren't trying to ask for uh um we're not trying to ask to like overtake them we're fighting for equality. Right. Like right. equality but threatens white supremacy so much to the point where they're like, we're going to use the law and elect people into uh, a different congressional seats and even our White House that are going to ups that are going to uphold uh, legislation, rhetoric and policies that will keep these people out. Right. And I mean, I think somewhere deep down, these white supremacists fear that they'll be treated by people of color the way that they've treated people of color. And they know how bad that is. And so they'll do anything to keep that from happening. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, like that just like that plays right into the Roy Moore thing, which is people are going to vote for Roy Moore despite the allegations against him because yeah. he is a vehement white supremacist. Yeah. He, you know, like he wants to go to Congress and uphold white supremacist values. Uh, I actually, just as a funny aside, I saw people talking the other day about uh, if we want to make America great again, that we should make Roy Moore a slave, um, which sort of plays into that con- thing that you said that like white people are afraid that if they're no longer in the majority, that they're going to be op- oppressed. Uh, I don't. You know what? I don't even think it goes that far. I think that they're just they just don't even want to compete on equal footing. That's what I'm saying. It's not even about oppression. They just do not want to lose their supremacy. 
Jackie? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think you're right. And it's, it's sad because when you look at like the disparity of wealth in this country and you look at, uh, you know, working class white people, they have a lot more in common with everybody else than they do with with Donald Trump. Right. But they yeah. want to uphold Donald Trump and, you know, these sort of like rich white people who do not care about them. Right. And they're, you know, and will are happy and willing to exploit their work and their rights to gain more power and more influence and more money um, because they don't want to be considered in the same category, the same boat as everybody else. And so they're willing to do and say and vote for whomever to have this perception of you know, being in control and, you know, being powerful. Absolutely. And, um, you know, Alyssa gave uh, an excellent historical analysis of the rise of white nationalism uh, following the attack on Pearl Harbor and how that compares to today. Uh, but let's talk about some of the differences, because back then, uh, folks didn't have social media and <laughs> they weren't tweeting, live tweeting the attacks on Pearl Harbor. Absolutely. And they did not have access at a click of a button to send out information that can hit every spot every corner of the world or misinformation or misinformation right. and so so let's talk about that because i mean i know history repeats itself but do you think that we're living in a time that's even worse because of social media and access to information i i, I think that's hard to say i think it's good and it's bad right because social media has i you know social media it's both. It's good and it's bad, right? There have been negative things perpetuated, and certainly a lot of people blame a lot. And Russia interfered with like Facebook and, you know, bought ads, and there was a lot of fake news that was spread throughout Facebook. Um, but social media has served a really valuable purpose as well to be able to mobilize people and organize, and it's shed a light on parts of the world that, you know, we as Americans may not have access to. It was one of the key, Twitter was crucial for the Arab Spring, right? So to find yep. out what was going on. And, um, you know, so it has provided a lot of transparency into places and and um, sunlight into things that we may not have had access to otherwise. But on the flip side, it's put forth a lot of false ideas and narratives and has been, you know, a platform to elevate these incorrect notions about society and, you know, articles that are fake Um you know, we saw a lot of fake news being spread throughout Facebook, um, you know, that everybody felt. Yeah, for. I mean, listen, I agree with you. I think it's sort of like a blessing and a curse. Like on one level, people now have access to like information at the tip of their fingers. Um, but at the same time that they have access to the correct information, they also have access to a lot of incorrect and misinformation. Right. Um, and so, you know, you're at a time where literally if you want to know something or learn something, honestly, you can just jump on your phone and find out. But you can also jump on your phone and end up in a bubble um, where you're only hearing a feedback loop of the things that you want to hear. At the same right. time that social media has helped to connect oppressed peoples to band together, it has also helped to connect the racists and people who are have unsavory motives and let them band together again in their own echo chamber. So, you know, and at the other thing, it sort of amplified the conversation in some ways to make it seem like things are really like crazy more intense than they are sometimes and that in turn ends up leading things to become more intense right. when sometimes we all just need to chill out um, but on that note we're going to take a quick chill out um, <laughs> and then we're going to come right back and continue having this conversation this is let your voice be heard on WHCR lately 
I'd rather be crazy Hold up, they don't love you like I love you Slow down, they don't love you like I love you I think Donald Trump needs to hold up. We are right back on Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. My name is Selena Hill. I'm here with my co-hosts Alyssa Fuchs and Jackie Cohen. Stanley Fritz is somewhere in the abyss watching us via Facebook Live. Hey, Stanley. Um, what's up, Stanley? So we uh, before we went on break, we were talking about... Pearl Harbor, 76 uh, years later, uh, and how that led to an uprising of white nationalism, sort of how what's happening today and uh, everything that sort of played out following the attacks on the Twin Towers here in New York City on September 11th. So um, I just wanted to bring the conversation back where we left off. We were talking about social media and how having access to information has helped white nationalists band together. But uh, on the flip side, it's also helped the good people like you and I uh, get positive information, educate and inform uh, and make sure that we are staying on top of this evil so that we can combat it. And speaking of that, I want to talk about how people resisted uh, back in the 40s uh, when, you know, the Japanese were Japanese Americans were being put into internment camps. And a lot of people looked at them as the other. Uh, there were still and even like around the world when they um, um, anti-Semitism. Uh, Semitism was at its high. Uh, there were still some good people who were resisting and pushing back. I'll throw it to you, Alyssa. Right. So, I mean, one of the things that people who were not Jewish in Germany did was they helped to uh, help Jewish people escape from Germany. Um, uh, you know, so basically there was like almost like an underground railroad sort of situation set up. Um, and there was one uh, gentleman in particular whose name, of course, is escaping me. Jackie, I don't know if you know, happen to know it off the top of your head, mm. but um, who was like directly responsible for helping over 200 or 300 Jews uh, escape from Germany and transporting them. Uh, Oscar Schindler. No, 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 no. There was somebody else. But there was many people like that. So that was one of the, the things that was being done there. Obviously, that's a very extreme type of action um, because, uh, you know, right now we are not, thankfully, in the situation where people are being sent to death camps. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there's still a lot of things that we can do um, in terms, some of which we are already doing, you know, protesting, speaking out against these types of injustices, putting pressure on our elected officials, um, you know, know, to fight against these. Um, like from a legal perspective, there's a lot of lawyers that have been filing amicus briefs, which are friend of the court briefs uh, to help people out, um, sorry, to help the courts out in looking at these issues and to support certain sides of them. Uh, so there's numerous different actions that we can take uh, to resist this kind of nationalistic fervor and to, uh, you know, protect oppressed and people from this kind of thing happening again. Jackie? And I mean, to bring it back to Pearl Harbor and the way that people resisted in the United States, like, look, look at Fred Korematsu, right? Look at his use of the courts. He sued because he felt, and correctly, even though the case didn't turn out the way that he wanted or probably should have, um, but he used the courts to sort of resist what the American government was doing. Um, and, you know, we're still using, like Alyssa said, people are still filing amicus briefs. They are resisting things like the Muslim ban, which I think has the closest tie here to this conversation. Um, 
through the judicial system. So, you know, there are ways that we can leverage power um, and, you know, using one full branch of government is, is one of them. Definitely. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up those examples here because I think that there's a lot of lessons from the past that should and could be applied today. It seems like history is just repeating itself and the majority has a lot of power to um, ostracize the other and to e- even keep them out of the country uh, legally. And then you have this whole move, not you, this whole movement to build a wall on the southern uh, border to keep more refugees out and people just looking for a better life so you know when it comes to looking back and and applying that today what lessons would you tell our government or those in the resistance to um advocate behind I think to not become complacent, you know, one of the the words of 2017, 2016, maybe was, you know, normalizing and don't normalize this behavior, um, because as soon as we become complacent, the government can take over and do whatever it wants. And, you know, Trump can take over and continue to bar people from entering this country and make life very, very difficult for the people in this country that he doesn't think should be here. Um, And so I think it's important for people to leverage their voices, leverage whatever privilege they have, because obviously to go to court to, um, you know, put your body on the line has different replications for some people than others. And so we should be speaking out like Alyssa said, you know, there were plenty of people in Nazi Germany who were, you know, putting their lives at risk to save Jews and to hide them and to get them out of the country. And so we as people, if, if we are, you know, not being actively oppressed. We need to use our privilege to help those that are. Right. No, I, I absolutely agree with everything that you guys just said. I don't want to repeat it. Um, you know, another thing is like, get involved. Um, you know, yes, you can go like march in the streets, and, you know, and you can go do these things. And, and that's being involved. Yes. But I mean, also get involved at, uh, at a deeper level, um, whether it's supporting candidates that, um, you know, through money, which we've talked about, if you can afford to do so, or even volunteering your time. I'll give you a great example of something that you can do right now, which is we have a real opportunity to win a Senate seat in Alabama of all places and to beat somebody who is a nationalist racist who agrees with Donald Trump and who's going to support him in everything. There is ways for you to do get out the vote phone banking right now from New York, from your house. You don't even have to go anywhere. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I saw numerous, there's also, um, there's information. I don't know exactly the information on where you go to do that, um, but I know that I saw people talking about it. If you go online and Google phone banking for Doug Jones, um, there are at least one or two locations that are set up here in New York City where you can go phone banked for Doug Jones And I know that there's ways for you to do it from your house. So there are legitimately ways for you to get involved um, and to help, you know. And and the other thing is talk to your family members. Have uncomfortable conversations. People always say, oh, we don't want to have that kind of conversation at the dinner table um, during Christmas, during Thanksgiving. You know, those you might not want to have that conversation, but that's almost the best time to have that conversation with the people in your family because they're a captive audience. They cannot go anywhere. And they're probably <laughs> not hanging out with you any other time. Any other time. So, you know, like... Who wants to hang out with them? I'm sorry, but like confront your family with these harsh realities 
realities, especially if you have that uncle in your family who says things that are borderline racist. Like, you know, because at the end of the day, this goes back to what I was saying in the last segment. When people don't speak up, when people don't do anything, this is when atrocities happen. This is when genocides happen. This is when people start getting literally sent to camps on trains and people in the community see it and they don't say anything about it. We do not want it to get to that point and there's no reason it should ever get to that level. Um, But if you do not speak out and say anything, then you are complicit in that kind of action. Yeah. What did Dr. King say about the white moderate being like the biggest threat to society? Like there there's something so true about, you know, you can think the way that you think and you can have your progressive ideals. And if you keep that to yourself and you allow people in your life to perpetuate false narratives and hate and bigotry and you don't do anything about it, you are a part of the problem. And I want to really echo what Alyssa said, that it's uncomfortable to have these conversations and that's okay. These are these are uncomfortable topics, right? Um, but it is your responsibility. If you, you know, it's not enough anymore to just simply go out and vote or just believe that these things are are true. You need to have these uncomfortable conversations. You need to talk to your family, to your friends, because they're not going to turn on CNN and believe who you know strangers that they have no investment in. They're, they'll be more willing to listen to you. And take it from me as somebody that knows personally, it can be difficult to have these conversations one on one. They don't go super easily you know you might not make a lot of progress in the first one or two or 10 or 20 conversations but progress can be made you need to hold the people in your life accountable you shouldn't expect others to do it if you cannot yeah uh, final comment Alyssa I mean listen I was just gonna say Martin Luther King once said on top of the quote you already gave freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor it must be demanded by the oppressed mm-hmm. um, we're only going to see a situation where oppressed people continue to rise up and demand this freedom and it would be much better for that to happen in a nonviolent way than in a violent way but you know that's the reason why keeping these conversations going is so important because ultimately if we don't continue to have this conversation then we are going to see violence and that is not something that we want you know jackie you made a great point about uh getting in uncomfortable spaces with family members that have uncomfortable conversations you want to know what's even more uncomfortable than that topic death the people who are dying absolutely and the people who who are literally being kicked out and and um oppressed because of fear and ignorance and the only way to combat it is to have those conversations and to inform to educate and empower which is what we do every week here on let your voice be heard i actually wanted to end this conversation by saying this it was a clear sunny morning 76 years ago when Japan killed 2,403 Americans on December 7, 1941. Following that attack, more than 400,000 U.S. soldiers died in the next four years. But in turn for their lives, they fought against fascism, they fought against uh, racism, and they fought against uh, these isms that were taking over the world in Europe and Asia, and they fought for those who were oppressed. Unfortunately, it took us dying, and it took an attack directly on U.S. soil for the U.S. to stand up against fascism and against oppression. That's what it took for us to wake up. My question to you is what will it take you to wake up? Do more people have to die 
Do we have to continue to watch Syrian refugees die in waters and, and little boys wash up on, on beaches because we won't let these oppressed people into our country because they can't find asylum here? It shouldn't take death, but it looks like the only time we as privileged Americans, especially to my white privileged Americans, start to care about stuff is when it hits our soil. And it shouldn't take that. We should learn from the lessons of yesterday and apply them to today and tomorrow. Because if we don't, then guess who's going to be knocking on our door? Death. And on that note, I am going to wrap up this conversation, guys. We're going to go on a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're coming right back to the quickie on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. Um, so imagine for a second, um, and I was going to pose this to both you and Jackie, but unfortunately Jackie had to run. Um, so Selena, imagine for a second that you work in a public sector job, right? You have a government job, uh, but for some reason you don't want to be in the union. And even though you don't join the union, you are now told that you are still going to have to pay a small fee uh, because even though you aren't in the union, you are still going to benefit from what the union is doing. How would you feel about having to pay a, a small fee because you were getting some kind of benefit even though you were the member of the union. Sounds like a fair deal. Right. Well, you know, some people don't think that is very fair. And one <laughs> of the people who does not think it's very fair that he should have to pay a small fee, even though he's not in the union, is a guy named Mark Janice. Um, and Mark Janice is an Illinois uh, a government employee, um, and he believes that having to pay this fee is amounting to compelled speech that requires him to subsidize the political views that he does not support in violation of his First Amendment rights. Um, and he says that because you unions play a powerful civic voice and a political role when they strike collective bargaining agreements, he considers that work to be inseparable from the union's other political and ideological activities. And so what did he do? He brought a lawsuit. Um, and he argued that um, having to pay that what we call an agency fee uh, violates his First Amendment rights. Now, this case wound its way through the courts and eventually it is going to make its way to the United States Supreme Court, who announced a couple of weeks ago that they are going to hear the case. The name of the case is Janice versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Council 31, which is the union. Um, and the Supreme Court's ruling, which likely probably will not come until the end of June, uh, will potentially be dealing a devastating blow to public sector unions, depending on how the Supreme Court comes out. Now, this is not the first time the Supreme Court is hearing a union challenge like this. This is actually the third time that they are hearing a very similar case. The last time they heard a case like this was the case that I mentioned earlier, Frederick versus California. Um, that case, the arguments were almost exactly identical to the arguments we're hearing today. I actually did a previous quickie on that case, so if you're interested, uh, you can go back through our archives and look for, you know, Frederick, that's F-R-E-D-R-I-C-H versus California, and you will find that quickie. And you can actually compare that quickie that I did then to this quickie. Um, you'll find that these cases are very, very similar. Um, but in that case, Frederick, the court did not reach a decision. And the reason why they did not reach a decision is because after they heard arguments in the case, but before they issued a decision, 
Justice Scalia died. And then the justices became deadlocked and they ended up being so deadlocked that they realized they were never going to be able to issue a majority decision. And if they issue a decision that's 4-4, that doesn't hold any legal weight because they're tied. Um, And so they said, well, you know, I guess we're going to have to take a new case and sort of get a redo. Um, Well, guess who's now sitting on the court for the redo? Justice Gorsuch, or Gorsucky, as I like to call him here. Um, And Justice Scalia's death and the vacancy essentially placed the future of public sector unions in the hands of the 2016 election. Um, And Justice Neil Gorsuch, who joined the court in April after his nomination by President Trump, uh, he did not share his views about organized labor during his confirmation hearings, but his track record as a judge in the Tenth Circuit was to strongly favor businesses over labor and strongly dislike unions. Um, This decision is probably going to be the first tangible and significant impact of the 2016 presidential election um, because this is directly connected to the fact that Republicans won this election and were able to put Gorsuch in this seat. Um, and so, you know, that's why it was so important, you know, and, and not to divert, because I've sort of talked about this before. One of the things that happened during the 2016 election that was so crucial was the this seat being the reason why Republicans said they went out and voted for Donald Trump. Um, So that is something that we should also keep in mind. Uh, But, you know, why is this case so directly important? The case centers on public sector unions' ability to collect what are known as agency fees. They're sometimes called fair share fees, and it works like I explained during my example to Selena, uh, which is in order to fund the operations, unions rely on dues and other contributions from their members. But they can also collect this small fee from non-members who are benefiting from their work doing collective bargaining because even though these people are not part of the union, they still get some benefits from the union's work. For example, higher wages or better working conditions. There are 23 states that allow public sector unions to collect these agencies' fees. And in 1977, in a case called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, the Supreme Court upheld this system. Under Abood, unions can collect the fees without directly violating the Constitution so long as they only use the revenue to cover costs directly related to their collective bargaining work. At the same time, the court said that the money cannot be used to pay for a union's political or ideological activities. Janice, the guy who is suing Mark Janice, as I mentioned, he wants to change that. He believes that these two things are inseparable, that the collective bargaining work is inseparable from the union's political ideological activities. And therefore, he is being compelled to give speech that he doesn't want to give by having to pay this fee. Organized labor groups um, strongly disagree with this interpretation. Um, They oppose the court's efforts to reconsider the Abood decision. Unions use the term fair share payments because they argue that the fees prevent non-union members from free riding and getting a benefit that they didn't pay for um, and that it solves the free rider problem. Um, Now, what can we expect? Well, the court's conservative members, led by Justice Samuel Alito, have signaled that they are uncomfortable with the Abood decision in recent years. In 2012, in another case, case known as Knox versus service employees. Justice Alito called the 1977 precedent something of an anomaly for its First Amendment implications. Two years later, in another union case, which is called Harris versus Quinn, uh, Justice Alito questioned the Abood decision uh, and the reasoning at length before concluding that it was questionable on several different grounds. 
And the five justice majority in Harris effectively telegraphed that they are willing to overturn this Abu decision. And now, as I said, they have their fifth member through Justice Gorsuch. Um, Merrick Garland, he might not have voted for this. Um, Somebody that Hillary Clinton would have appointed to this court seat had she have won, almost definitely would not have voted for this. Elections have consequences, but I digress. What happens if Janice wins? What is that consequence going to be? Well, if Janice prevails and Abu is overturned, the court's ruling could effectively act as a nationwide right-to-work law uh, for the country's public sections unions with potentially crushing implications for the funding and the resources of the unions that represent them. This is because it was estimated in 2015 that only about a third of the workers that public unions represent would pay fees no matter what. About half of those people were on the fence about it. In other words, if given the option to leave the union and avoid paying a fee, many would take that option and they would still be getting a benefit from the union's collective bargaining efforts. Nonetheless, that would not only affect the union's financial health, but would possibly have broader implications for politics more broadly. Although the fees issue is now at the in front of the court um, and the unions cannot use these fees for politics and lobbying, this also could lead to a reduced role of organized labor in the political stage. Just as an aside, um, by one estimate during the 2012 election cycle, organized labor spent one point seven billion dollars supporting Democratic candidates. Um, I will end by saying this. The stakes in this case are very high, not only for the parties, um, but also for other unions and, you know, that represent public employees who have to pay agencies fees and the health of the unions. Unions brought us the five day work week. Unions brought us the weekends. Unions brought us laws that say that, you know, you have to work in conditions that are safe for your health. Unions have had incredible benefit. Um, on this country. And it would be a shame, an absolute shame uh, if they were to go away because of this decision. Um, And the last thing I will say, which I already said, but I'm going to reiterate because it is super important. Elections have consequences. Your local elections have consequences. The midterm elections have consequences. The presidential election has consequences. Go out and vote. Even if it's for somebody that you may not agree with on everything, you are never going to find your unicorn candidate that you are going to agree with on everything. It is important that you go out and support candidates that you at least agree with, um, you know, 60, 70 percent. You know, for I, I can't stand Ronald Reagan, but he once said, I'll take 70 percent of what I can get and I'll try and come back and get the other 30 percent later on. Liberals, take 70 percent of what you can get and go out and vote. The midterms are coming. Let's have a blue wave. Thank you, Alyssa, for breaking down uh, this SCOTUS case, which will decide the fate of unions, something that even Donald Trump constituents and supporters will greatly miss because they benefit from. But, hey, they voted for this. Uh, On that note, guys, I just want to take some time to thank everyone who listened in and chimed in. I see all the comments flooding our stream. No, we're being trolled and we we will let you um, we will let you comment if um, you have something legitimate to say, uh, even if you disagree with us. But we are blocking the trolls today. All right. And on that note, we want to thank everyone else who listened in. Uh, And guys, if you want to continue to support, let your voice be heard and listen to us. We have a podcast that you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google, and of course, SoundCloud. You can also check us out online at LYBBH.com. And of course, you can check us out on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Let Your Voice Be Heard, and Instagram and Twitter at BeHeard underscore radio. On that 
that note, guys, continue to fight the power as we will continue to inform, educate, and empower. It's been real. We thank you, and God bless.